So welcome to this second podcast that we're doing today on primary care um, and immunotherapy for, for primary care. I'm joined again uh, by Anna and Elise, and, and hopefully you've listened to this in order, and so I won't do another long introduction. But what we have covered in the first podcast, um, and, and really Elise got to just ask anything she likes, and we'll continue to do in this podcast, we covered what immunotherapy is. We, we covered a little bit about the outcomes, and, and Anna got quite excited about that section. And then we covered a little bit on side effects and talked about the fact that they're autoimmune, they can affect any organ of the body. And I was just alluding to the fact that we've got reversible and irreversible side effects that we need to think about. So, Elise, back over to you. Thanks, Ricky. Um, you know, I think we, we just, as you say, just opened up about side effects and, and you'd mentioned that it could happen to any system. Um, the question I was about to ask at the end of the last podcast, really, is would you see more than one system at the same time? We're we looking for everything all in one go, or would it just be isolated to one one system at a time? Anna's got the face that says she wants to answer. Go for it, Anna. Um, the majority of patients have one system at, at one time. And actually, when we first started seeing these side effects, that sort of felt like it was a hallmark. I have to say, the more we treat and, and the sort of the, 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 the increasing diversity of patients that we treat, we do see some people that have more than one at any one time. The other thing is we can see that people have sort of traditional rheumatological side effects where they have multiple systems affected through the same process so we can see patients develop things like systemic sclerosis we can see them um, get things like sarcoidosis so actually they can have multiple systems as a result of the same process going on but most patients will have one organ affected at, at any one time but they can have then have serial organs affected throughout their treatment and after they've finished their treatment. Would the presence of one significant response then make it more likely that they'd have another down the line? So it's certainly possible. So if I see somebody, let's say, who's got colitis, who's developed inflammation in their bowel, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got heightened alert that there may be another side effect that may develop because I know by definition that their immune system is active, and that same immune system, if it's active against one organ, will, you know, may well be active against another organ. I'm also hoping, and we might get to this that that same immune system is active against the cancer. And so it may not always be a bad thing when we see a degree of side effect or toxicity. Um, so, so to answer the question, because we're about, we're here to answer your questions, not to go off on tangents. The, que the answer question is yes, if I see one toxicity, I'm, I'm heightened, I've got heightened awareness that there could be other side effects simply because I know the immune system's active and that immune system may be active against more than one organ. Anna, anything you want to add? Just to say that I think sometimes we think that there are some toxicities that may um, occur in each other's presence more frequently, but pinning that down to an absolute is, is quite difficult and it's by no means a certainty, but things like colitis and hepatitis can often go hand in hand. Hepatitis and thyroiditis can often go hand in hand. Um, and then we have these things called overlap syndromes, which are fairly unique to, um, to checkpoint inhibitor toxicity, um, where we're seeing constellations of things that go together which haven't previously gone together. And, and the biggest one that we're aware of is there's a constellation of of myocarditis, myositis and myosina gravis, which basically is all very scary stuff. Um, it doesn't happen very frequently. So I think that's the reassuring thing. But if we see somebody that gets a new onset of neurology, um, we also we think, oh, is that an immunotherapy induced toxicity? And then we always think, oh, is there anything wrong with their heart or their muscles? And we tend to do some blood tests to make sure that they haven't got these overlap syndromes now. I think the other thing is that 
because these symptoms are often a bit vague and a bit unusual, um, just being aware of the fact that immunotherapy can do this is so important because otherwise what tends to happen is people go in with, with symptoms that are quite consistent with something and actually once they've excluded that something hasn't happened then actually it gets it gets discarded as a problem so for example I have had patients who have developed a unilateral ptosis as part of their neurology gone in with a query stroke found not to have a stroke and then nobody's sort of then gone okay but what else might this be so I think it's not it's not always the it's not always the thing causing the patient to present but if you've ruled out the kind of the thing that's clearly what you would be worried about in terms of the first the first diagnosis always think could this be the immunotherapy? Because if it if it's slightly unusual or it's a bit weird and wonderful, then I think increasingly we're learning that it is quite likely that the immunotherapy is causing some form of side effect. Thanks, Anna. And, and I think that's really important and probably something we'll, we'll come back to. But one thing that we haven't mentioned and that I know when I've seen Ricky talk causes a lot of concern for community clinicians is when can these side effects occur? Is it just when they're on treatment or might we see them down the line? And if obviously these patients might be seven years down the line, how long are we worried about this for primary care's point of view? So unfortunately, we're kind of worried about it forever, <laughs> which is clearly not what we really want to, to hear. We do know the more we study this, we know that the majority of people have their toxicity in the first four to five months of treatment. So it's by no means not everyone that we're expecting late side effects. But I think there's there's two things. There's the, the fact that we recognise that some people get the side effects that we see acutely, but actually very much later down the line. So patients can have been on treatment for a long time or in fact have been off treatment for a long time and part of the reason for that is it's the same principle of the fact that the immune system has has we've activated it it has an ongoing activation process so just because they're no longer receiving the checkpoint inhibitor we get benefit from a cancer perspective but we also have the potential to get side effects so I think that's the rationale behind it which makes it make a bit more sense but we have seen people have toxicity two to three to four years out of out of completing their treatment and then and then develop a, an inflammatory type condition which is related to their checkpoint inhibitor so in Clatterbridge and in Liverpool specifically we have patients they we get we give them post-treatment alert cards which basically says although I have finished treatment I may still have a toxicity because it doesn't really make sense otherwise and you know people just say well you've stopped that treatment so it won't be an issue but in fact in this patient group it is. So that's the first thing, the sort of the the, the side effects we recognise happening very late on. We also think there's a group of patients that are developing late effects. So things that we hadn't necessarily seen as an acute side effect, but they're developing um, in the in the longer term. So we're worried about things like impact on fertility. We're worried about things like early menopause. We're worried about um, things like sub subclinical cardiac impairment so all of these things we're monitoring for and um, there's a big focus on eight effects and I think the third thing is that people can have chronic side effects so they can have side effects that they just don't get better and grumble for a long time and there was a paper that was published about two years ago now that suggests that about 43 percent of patients that have checkpoint inhibitors will have some degree of chronic effect from their immunotherapy and again it makes sense we're sort of putting these people into a subclinical inflammatory state so things like um you know do they develop more anemia and uh, over time and various other questions that we have that would be in keeping with a chronic inflammatory state are things that we're starting to see in this patient group. So there's sort of three groups of late toxicity, if you like. So as much as that was probably meant to be reassuring, <laughs> it's, it's terrifying, <laughs> isn't it, for, for, for community clinicians. Um, and I, I think having heard Ricky speak before, the, you know, maybe a few years ago using it for one or two sites, immunotherapy, and now, you know, using it for more and more different cancer sites and in the future potentially used almost universally potentially or at least a lot more than it is now and what 
you then see in harm sounds like almost a, a new speciality of need, isn't it? That the the you know almost all of those things you describe could turn up on primary care's doorstep, and and it be very vague, and it not be very specific, and it and. If I'm quite honest, you know, hopefully your patients are very well informed, Anna, but the patients don't always necessarily think it's the first thing in their mind. The diarrhoea might be because they had some treatment two years ago and they may not carry that card anymore. It'll be the first thing they pull out their bag when they come in and see us. And added to that, particularly in Wales, there's a move to sort of see the pharmacist first for some sort of mild symptoms. And they may not even get past the front door of the surgery to have a conversation with a GP. So I guess my real worry is patient safety and recognising those side effects as early as possible. Appreciating that you've mentioned patient education and, and the alert card, is there anything else you can recommend that you know could help us in primary care that, that can help us recognise these patients earlier? If I take that first, Ricky, then then feel free to, to add. So I think there are a few things. So one of the things is about, you know, you have a series of patient alerts built into whichever EPR process you're using. Um, and I think that if you have, you know, there are codes for immunotherapy treatment. And I think if that is put on there and stays on there permanently, at least you've got a, a, a process by saying, actually, this patient is in is in this group of potential risk. The other thing is we tend to, we have developed in, in, in our region, a, a GP starting letter and a GP discontinuation letter. So there will be things in your correspondence that sort of well certainly in certain regions and I think we should get to the point where we develop this uh, you know throughout the UK that all of these things shouldn't be regional they should be a, a blanket uh, a blanket provision uh, across all regions um, but again sort of having that correspondence there to say actually these are the things to look out for um, and these are things we, we would be you know, concerned about. I think you're absolutely right. It's about multidisciplinary um, education and awareness. So, you know, absolutely, if your pharmacist is seeing, you know, doing 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 the, the education or the review at the front door, they should be aware that this is an issue. Similarly, your practice nurses. Um, I think there is also a need for a route back into oncology advice. So I think, you know, there's quite a lot of the times that patients present to their to their GPs in primary care because they don't think it's related to their, their their treatment because actually what they're experiencing is quite vague and sometimes it doesn't have a particular symptom they just don't feel quite right so you will see these people and I think it's just about a case of understanding in your in your practice in your your practice clusters where and how to get advice about patients that have had treatment in the past we won't mind in oncology services having a conversation about somebody that's had immunotherapy previously we won't say go away we don't want to talk about them that absolutely won't happen and certainly in our region we've extended things like our hotline we'll take calls from patients who have had immunotherapy whenever they've had it they don't have to have had it in a certain time frame so really important to feel to sort of for us and for me and Ricky to our, our primary care colleagues to feel free to call us about and ask these questions. Um, and you're right, I think it's about education to everybody that sees these patients at the front door, ongoing patient education, easy recognition that they're a patient group that are maybe at risk, and an easy route into getting advice from oncology services. Is there anything more you wanted to add, Ricky? I guess just a couple of things that I would add to that. So we're doing a piece of work at the moment with our immunotherapy toxicity service where we're taking calls directly. So if someone rings the treatment helpline, be it a professional or a patient, there is a direct bleep to us as the immunotherapy team to screen that call to see if that feels like it could be IO related. I think the alerts, at least we know we've been working for a little while to try and get this this sorted locally I think it's been challenging because of systems and and the IT bit but I think we both feel strongly that we need to do we need to have something like that in place and we need to work through the, the slightly different interfaces that we've got and then I think we have to be open and honest and say that patients are going to come with diarrhea 
on immunotherapy and we're not going to know if this is immune related or not um as you know better than anna and i that in your world diarrhea can be pretty much anything from almost you know very minor will resolve in a few days um you know to inflammatory bowel disease to now an immunotherapy colitis and that differential is wide and, and it's going to be almost impossible for you in primary care by the end of that few minutes to go this is immunotherapy related because in fact even in Anna and I's world we don't get to we don't figure it out quickly we need to send all the samples we need to look at the the temporal relationship to the treatment and there's things that again probably we won't get into today into today that help us work out if this is an immune driven side effect or if it's a non-immune driven side effect so but this is complex and so as Anna said picking up the phone having a conversation um, you know dropping an email saying this is what's going on if that's the the platform that's set up locally I think we're not expecting primary care to make the diagnosis we're hoping that primary care colleagues will say I've heard about this thing could it be related? Are they on a drug that is an immunotherapy or have they been on that? And let's get some support then from our from our oncology colleagues. And I think increasingly there are immunotherapy specific individuals in the cancer centres. So that, that so Ricky and I are both very lucky. We've got really good and, and, and increasing teams and absolutely so about 30% of my team's work is advice and guidance um, so it's really I think you know the, the, there are different setups but quite a lot of centres have got an immunotherapy nurse or an immunotherapy lead clinician there are I think one of the things that would be quite useful in terms of that regional discussion is who is the right person to ask about these things is it trying to get hold of the primary um, oncologist which isn't always the easiest thing to do is it trying to go through the hotline or is it trying to go through to an immunotherapy team or immunotherapy therapy specialist so I think you know actually there's there's that bit of regional conversation between primary and secondary care about about what that pathway looks like local to you which actually I think is really important to, to understand your regional picture but there will all be always be somebody I think exactly it's about identification and going could this be we, we press on you if you've ever had the the, the pleasure slash trauma of listening to another one of our podcasts we always talk about the fact that we need to investigate for other causes so it's not it's not a slam dunk it's definitely immunotherapy but it's how and who does those investigations and I think that's a case of us working together to work that out and I guess leading on from that point my question was about urgency so for patients well with diarrhea they've walked into the surgery my first instinct would be to send it off for, you know, is it infection? Send a sample off for that, which, you know, by the time they drop the sample back and it been to the lab, it will be a few days. So if we're waiting a week to get that result back, if the patient's well, we can wait, can we? Like I know that Ricky sort of said about priorities and, and you know, when to give steroids early in, in previous conversations and things. So just to make sure that we're all thinking so, it as soon as possible. So I would say, and, and Ricky, feel free to disagree with me, but I, I, I think that actually we're in a case where it isn't, they need treatment right this minute but they need treatment quicker than a week so it's it's often that we can manage them in ambulatory services so they can either be SDEC services set up by acute medics or it can be oncology specific services again it depends a little bit on your region but we used to have a a thing where you used to say they had to go in immediately and get and get steroids immediately now if they come in and they're having their diarrhea eight times a day even if they are clinically well if they are having torrential diarrhea they still they need to be seen the same day 
Um, so I think that's often a bit of a challenge with our patients because most of the time if they've got immunotherapy colitis, for example, at least in the early days, they actually say, I feel completely well, but I'm having my bowels open eight to 10 times a day. And you go, oh, well, you're actually all right. Go by the, we always say treat the severest parameter. So if they're having their, their bowels open eight to 10 times a day, they need to be seen that same day. If they're coming in and they've got sort of a bit of a trundling diarrhea, they've got they're having their bowels open four or five times, they definitely need to be seen and they probably need steroids within 24 hours, but they don't need to go in acutely, you know, in the middle of the night. They can go to an, to a, an arranged appointment the next day, but I wouldn't be sending stool cartridges off and waiting a week unless there is a strong history that makes you suggest. So if everybody in the family's had gastroenteritis, then, then you know, the, by, the, by the laws of likelihood, that's a probable situation. If they don't have any features in their history, then I would assume it's iocolitis until proven otherwise and treat them a little bit more acutely. But it can be in a planned within 24 hours um, process as long as they're not got any severe parameters. And the way to find out that is we all, we, we have mostly there are national protocols in terms of helping you grade the severity of these toxicities there is they're a single page protocol they're not too complicated they're red amber green graded so relatively easy at a glance to interpret um, and certainly for Clatterbridge you can google ours and there's Yukon's guidance that are reflective of these that are coming out which is national guidelines and you can tell from that whether we would grade it as mild moderate or severe and that will help you understand how quick you need to process and, and, and manage the patient. Yeah, it's certainly a game changer, isn't it? Is there any sort of specific side effects? I'm aware of time that you or, or specific things um, that you would like to discuss that primary care should need to have an increased awareness of. I'll put that on to Ricky, I guess. Yeah, so I'll take something that, that I really want to get across is the tired patient. So Anna will no doubt talk through kind of her fatigue screen because she loves to talk through that. But my simpler version to Anna's fatigue screen is if you see somebody who's generally tired, the sort of patient that you might just think, well, they're on cancer treatment, they're going to be tired. There's a number of things to do and Anna will talk through them. But for me, the two most important things is think about their thyroid function and think about their adrenal function. So if somebody is tired on immunotherapy or having finished immunotherapy, at the bare minimum, and there's other things that we will suggest, but at the bare minimum, if you forget everything else, do a 9am cortisol to check the adrenal function and do a, a thyroid function to see if they're hypothyroid, because both of those things are incredibly common with immunotherapy and really easy to miss. And now, thyroid, you've probably got a little bit of time because if someone's hypothyroid, you know, that can trundle along for a little while. They'll start feeling more tired, a bit constipated, you know, they'd be putting on weight, all the things we know about. And then, you know, that will improve relatively quickly when we start them on levothyroxine. The patient who becomes adrenal insufficient, so, you know, they're no longer producing the cortisol that they need to, those patients won't be able to make a stress response. They often become quite unwell and they do need a replacement hormone. And so if I see tiredness, my instinct is thyroid and 9am cortisol. Anna, give me a better version. No, no, I think your version is perfect. I will, I will add a few extra, extra things to do it, but, but beautiful. I think the the key for primary care is if you've got somebody who comes in and they've been increasingly more tired over the last couple of days, that's something you need to pay attention to. So, um, not just fatigue, but the the rapidity of the fatigue worsening is important. If somebody tells you that they have got 
bone aching exhaustion and they've been like that for two days they actually need to be seen same day if they are getting a bit more tired then yes I would agree then you've got time to do a thyroid function and a 9am cortisol the other thing in primary care if somebody tells you they're tired and on immunotherapy is to do a BM because we do have a a not insignificant number of patients about one percent of people that develop diabetes diabetic ketoacidosis just de novo so actually a quick BM will tell you that that isn't going on so that's also something you can do sort of in primary care Ricky's right though one of the things that we've recognized in immunotherapy patients is actually they get fatigued for lots of reasons and I think we were quite slow on the uptake of this because a lot of patients with cancer have fatigue and so you tend to go oh it's the cancer or oh, it's the treatment which is which is which is fair but in this case there's actually probably quite a lot of things you can either do to reverse it or, or identify the cause of it before you actually go oh it's just it, it's it's the it's the result of their treatment but there's nothing we can do about it so we know that patients who um, get fatigued they could be presenting with myocarditis so increasingly people again who've got fairly rapidly progressive fatigue we will do a, a cardiac screen including a troponin a pro BMP and a CK um, but also they can become quite deplete. So again, if we think back to that being chronically inflamed state, they're essentially using all of their building blocks. They're creating white cells. They're creating, you know, they're, they're working really hard. And so often they become quite deplete of their of their various um, various constitutional makeup. So we they get iron deplete. They can often be iron deplete in the absence of anemia. So they're quite fatigued as a result of it, but they haven't become anemic yet. They can get B12 and folate deficient. We know that the vast majority of our patients are vitamin D deficient. And interestingly, they can be vitamin D deficient before they start treatment and be all right. But if they're vitamin D deficient and they're on treatment, they tend to get fatigue with it. So actually replacing that's really key. Um, and then again, exactly as Ricky said, sort of those those endocrine markers. The other thing is that we see um, sort of isolated hypogonadism in not an insignificant number of people. So we tend to check testosterone in men and increasingly check that we haven't put women into menopause because actually I think we were we were we were slow on the uptake of that, but we are we are rendering women um, early menopausal and getting all the symptoms and side effects associated with that. So fatigue is actually a really big challenge for us in immunotherapy, but there's lots of things that we tend to look at to make sure that we've understood if there's any reversible any reversible features. I, I'm my mind's blown again like just hearing you guys talk about these things you know any any of those many things could present to primary care and, and as you say that sort of need for the alert box I'd love to sort of you know pursue how we universally improve that across the UK really yeah, definitely. Um, conscious of time Rick is there anything more you wanted to sort of bring in as a as closing comments really yeah so I guess just a couple of final things for me so if anyone who is interested in this space um, you know we would say this but Anna and I have created at this point and we're in June end of June so we've created about 40 podcasts so far where we go through lots of these different things um, I think the the space is growing so more and more patients are going to be treated we've all got to get comfortable with this space it's not going anywhere this isn't something that's come in and then going to be gone the next year these patients are going to be on on these treatments and the number of indications is going up very quickly and just a final comment to say that today we've talked about checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy but immunotherapy and absolutely not in the scope of today is a whole host of different ways of stimulating the immune system using viruses vaccines different types of immunotherapy that our hematological colleagues are doing. Again, things like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which are not, as a rule, checkpoint inhibitors. And so this, we just, as this is easy for us to say, because this is Anna and I's life. But what we've talked about today is checkpoint 
point inhibitor immunotherapy, MABs with an L in, what we've not done is covered the whole of immunotherapy, which is an expanding area because we're using the immune system uh, in different ways. And so maybe we'll come back and do something else like that. Anna, anything you want to say around that? Um, just don't get too scared. We'll do. We'll, we'll we'll come back and break that down as well. Don't don't worry. Um, I think the other thing is um, just to always mention we've we've set up a, a clinical network, a national clinical network called the IO Clinical Network. Um, we'd be really keen to have as many GPs involved with that as possible. Um, it's a it's a essentially it's a resource looking at um, uh, where to get information and also that we often we're looking at discussing cases. We have a link to our national IO education uh, forum as well. So I would encourage anybody that wants more information about this or guidelines etc um to go there and it's it's www.ioclinicalnetwork.co.uk and anybody's welcome to join and the more the merrier fabulous thanks very much both so, so thank you for joining both uh, Lisa and Anna. I mean, I, I think that was really, really valuable. And, and let's keep the dialogue open. Let's try and work together genuinely to, to improve this for patients. Because although we focus a lot of the last bit on toxicity and rightly so let's not lose sight of the fact that for patients this is a paradigm shift this is potentially talking about curing stage four metastases and so you know it's an absolutely wonderful thing that we've got it we've just got to know how to manage it so thank you both and have a lovely day thanks ricky thank you